a wise quote comes to mind from the, the teacher, uh, Kala Rinpoche, who I've only, I didn't really study with, I only met once, but he was a great uh, Tibetan lama. And he said, we live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. You are that reality. When you understand this, you will realize that you're nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. And that, that pretty much sums up the whole <laughs> shebang for me. I mean, it, really, it's, it gives you the full tour of, of what there is to pay attention to and recognize. Welcome to Ye Gods. I'm Scott Carter. Since 2018, one of the first voices I hear most mornings is that of my friend, neuroscientist and author and lecturer Sam Harris. On his Waking Up app, Sam offers guided meditations and a virtual Aristotle's Academy of conversations and courses from great thinkers and teachers. He and I met when I produced the first 16 seasons of HBO's Real Time, and he was a valued guest. His 2014 book, which is also called Waking Up, spoke to the spiritual journey I'd been on since a near-death asthma attack in 1987, urgently awoke me to life's most profound questions. His book is subtitled A Guide to Spirituality Without Religion, and it is a map of the continents of spiritual practices it explores a no-man's-land between science and religion. He writes that the book's goal was to simultaneously give intellectual and spiritual support to two important truths. Our world is dangerously riven by religious doctrines that all educated people should condemn, and yet there is more to understanding the human condition than science and secular culture generally admit. Sam, it is a delight to welcome you to Ye Gods. How are you today? Thank you, Scott. Thank you for that all too generous introduction. That's uh, I was beginning to hear uh, a uh, a eulogy. Uh, it was, <laughs> so it was uh, anyway. High praise. Thank you. I hope the necessity for a eulogy will not come for yeah. many many years. <laughs> give me give me a few more years, and perhaps for us both. You began, I think, with Saturday's mm -hmm. session. The guided meditation began by asking us all to take a moment to appreciate that in a world that has seen more than its fair share of chaos, we all are endeavoring to create an island of calm where we currently are. Is that the goal of meditation, to create an island of calm? Well, it's one of the goals. It's, it's not, uh, you know, arguably not the deepest goal, but it, it, it's, it's certainly one of the effects of doing the practice. In order to practice to any degree, degree of depth, you have to first intend to pay attention in an unusually clear way to your experience moment to moment. And, and it, certainly in the beginning, most people find that difficult to do in the midst of everything else they're tending to do, whether it's working or playing or reading or, or they're, they're just, they're living out the consequences of their distraction and meditation, whatever technique you're using, is the antithesis of distraction, right? So you're taking, you're taking a, a break from the ordinary course of your, you know, seeking happiness in all its various modes and trying to discover something about the nature of your own mind from the first person side by just paying careful attention. Well, in the four years that I've been following this guided meditation, at the risk of this sounding like an infomercial, there are a couple of things that I notice happening within me 
tell me if I'm on the right track or this is what other people report. First of all, I experience a increased ability to be patient. Hmm. I feel like I experience an increased ability to focus. And then in the opposite way, I feel like I am not as reactive to negative words or events, that it's almost like there is a protective shield around me so that when I <laughs> perceive someone trying to be hurtful in some way, that the, that the words do not get into my brain or my heart, that they kind of bounce off out in front of me. Mm -hmm. am, am I, am I on the right track? Yeah. Yeah. No, those are uh, among the many benefits of the practice. The foundational insight there is that the world and other events and, and other people's behavior never really makes you feel any particular way apart from what you subsequently do with your own mind, right? It requires your participation and it requires in the case of negative mental states like you know, anger and anxiety and disappointment and impatience, it requires that you contract, right? It's almost like you're, you're making a closed fist again and again and again in, in all these different ways and, and response to all these different triggers in the world. And it's uncomfortable, right? So you're, you're doing something in order to be uncomfortable in the midst of events. And Meditation allows you to notice the mechanics there and to relinquish uh, your necessary part of, of collaborating with, with uh, your enemies and obstacles so as to make yourself miserable. So things really do bounce off. I mean, this is not, you know, meditation isn't the only way of, of influencing this, this process. I mean, you, you can actually just think differently about your life and the world too. I mean, you know, the Stoics and, and you know, Stoic philosophy, uh, people like Marcus Aurelius and Seneca had insights along these lines where it's just reframing the situation conceptually can lead you to, to feel very differently in the midst of experiences that would, would often provoke impatience or anger or hatred or you know, some classically negative and, and antisocial feeling. One of the simplest and surprisingly effective phrases that you will repeat is when you take a pause on the guided app and, and we're off into doing whatever we're doing, mm. and then you come back in, very often you will come back in by, by it's almost like you're guessing, I know yeah. I'm probably coming back in while you've got a thought. Yeah. Yeah. And And then by simply realizing there is not necessarily a corresponding reality to whatever I'm thinking about, and it is just a thought, it is continually surprising and amazing to me how the thought evaporates. Yeah, surprising on both sides. It's surprising that it commandeers your mind and attention and life as fully as it does when it goes uninspected. And it's amazing how diaphanous and insubstantial and and brief a thought is the moment you do put your attention on it you know when you notice a thought as a thought as an object in consciousness it it is a genuine mystery how such a thing could ever seem to define what you are as a subject and there is no real separation between 
meditation and the rest of life because all you have is your mind in each moment. All you have is the difference between being lost in thought or recognizing thought and the rest of the flow of your experience for what it is in each moment. So there's, there's distraction and non-distraction. And the crucial difference there at bottom is the difference between suffering unnecessarily and not, right? Feeling this cramp of, of selfhood and all of the negative mental states that tend to be anchored to it, you know, worry and, and regret and just this c- continuous sense of never really arriving in life. No matter how good things are, most people find themselves on a kind of treadmill where they're, you know, they may be lurching from one good thing after the next and mitigating suffering to an impressive degree, but they're still not quite making contact with the present moment in a satisfying way because they're always leaning over it into the ne- next moment, trying to get the good stuff that is is sort of disappearing into into the sinkhole of memory as quickly as it can be acquired, right? There is this mirage-like quality to even the best life where you meet your goals and the satisfaction is, it may be intense, but it is all too brief. And then the question is, what are you going to do next? At bottom, meditation is the doorway into this insight that you really can't become happy. You can only be happy. And the logic of everyone's search for happiness is, is to try to find experiences that are so good and so emotionally salient, so captivating, uh, so you know, meaning-drenched that they give you a good enough reason to fully bask in the profundity of the present moment for the, you know, the period in which they're, you know, they're, they're fully blossoming, right? So you, you finally have accomplished the thing you've been working toward for years, right? And you're celebrating with your family, say, right? Okay, this is the moment to truly savor. But most people find that their minds are not really good at that, right? You, they, we, we've, trained some, we've trained a very different attitude, the attitude of, in the worst case, continually narrating our engagement with the present moment through this discursive veil of thought and never being able to break through that. So we're just, even in the moment of trying to extract the greatest pleasure from the greatest moment, we are talking to ourselves about how great this is. And that is, it's it's just not the right mechanism by which to make full contact with with the present. And so meditation is a way of breaking that spell and, and discovering even in the most ordinary moment there's an, an immense sense of well-being that's available, and it gives you the, the opportunity to be happy before anything happens, before your desires get gratified, before you make the change to your life that you very well should make, maybe. You can recognize that you're already free, and that's, you know, that really is a kind of superpower that can be hard won, certainly in the beginning, but it's, it's there to be discovered. I know a lot of people... A lot of my friends meditate. A lot of my friends are not interested at all in meditation. But the friends that surprise me the most are the the ones who tell me some people can't meditate. And Mm -hmm. I have tried it and I just can't do it. What do you you think about that? Undoubtedly, there's a range of natural talent here. And so there are people who, you know, the first time they close their eyes and follow the, the most basic instruction, they are immediately captivated. Then there are pe- the people like me who I don't think I had any real natural aptitude for it. And 
I had had certain experiences with psychedelics that convinced me beyond any possibility of doubt that there was a there there, right? That there was a landscape of mind that could be explored. And so, and that's been the virtue of psychedelics for, for so many people. It's taken people who, who, for whatever reason, you know, wouldn't have, wouldn't have given meditation or any other form of contemplative life enough of a shot. But they were just bowled over by the experience they had on one or another of these compounds. And, and the experience, the implications of the experience was undeniable. Well, you write in Waking Up, you have a section I want to read where you, after this, um, one of your initial psychedelic experiences, you say, I had viewed organized religion as merely a monument to the ignorance and superstition of our ancestors. But I now knew that Jesus, the Buddha, Lao Tzu, and the other saints and sages of history had not all been epileptics, schizophrenics, or frauds. I still considered the world's religions to be mere intellectual ruins, maintained at enormous economic and social cost. But I now understood that important psychological truths could be found in the rubble. Hmm. How... How would you summarize those psychological truths? One is just that the reality of impermanence, to take the, the, the Buddhist angle here, has certain undeniable implications. And in the, the grossest sense, it has you know, the, the implication that we're all going to die, right? That we, ha- we have a, this finite span of life to make the most of. And what does that mean to make the most of it? And and even if you're committed to making the most of it, even if you're not taken in by any illusion that you you might get everything you want after you die, and that this time really isn't precious, it's still a challenge because everything changes, right? There's just you. There's just there's no stability even in the midst of trying to to extract the most out of life because uh, of impermanence. And so, what do you do with that? And is there a a deeper and wiser orientation to have. And yes, so the, you know, the various contemplative traditions that have introduced certain uses of attention, you know, meditation being the, the generic class of those practices. And it's just, it is in fact the case that if you pay close enough attention, there are things to discover about the nature of the mind that are liberating, that, that reduce suffering massively and, and even ultimately. And disclose a mode of well-being that you you would otherwise think impossible right and so it it really does repay attention uh, i mean i continue to argue that we need to think about this these truths in 21st century non-sectarian terms i mean there's just you know if there's something true in buddhism and and in the indian tradition generally and in taoism and also in the western canon and in christianity and judaism and islam and Anywhere else, you know, you know, in shamanism, I mean, just find it wherever you want to find it. Whatever's true there is, by definition, as is true in every other rational enterprise, it is deeper than culture. It is not a mere cultural construct. It is, we're talking about propensities of the human mind that are universally available, regardless of culture, regardless of, you know, linguistic context, regardless of geography. And so at this point in, in human history, when all of the world's literature is, is available to us and all languages have been translated, I just don't think we have the right to be provincial 
about this anymore. I think it's I think sectarianism is just counterproductive and, and intrinsically divisive and confusing. And so, the effort I think we need to make now is I'm not saying we disavow our traditions just to be iconoclastic. We can use whatever we love about them and 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 whatever is wise in them, but. We just have to recognize that we are the beneficiaries of the totality of human knowledge and human literature at this point. And it's all a human conversation. And we should have a 21st century conversation, not a 7th century one or a 5th century BC one. We, should just, we, sh- we shouldn't be anchored to any specific book or specific tradition. And so, yeah, that, uh, trying to bring together that kind of uh, syncretic, clarifying effort where you know ancient wisdom is is pressure tested by modern science is is what I'm doing over at waking up. One of the reasons I'm so delighted to be talking to you about this is, first of all, you know a lot about religions you don't believe in. I feel like you have there's no glib dismissal, and it's that quote that I was mentioning that I mentioned that I read before about Jesus and Buddha and Lao Tzu. You're going through the rubble and looking for the gold that that might be there. I will tell you that I I do believe in God. I don't belong to any religion. I don't call myself a Christian, though I've often attended Christian churches. And in fact, I invited you one time to come to First Congregational Church of Los Angeles. You accepted the invitation. And I remember, and you had a conversation with the senior minister, and I remember you making a comment about one thing that, that atheism does not do as well as religions is help people through stages of life and mark, mark life transitions. And then I also remember that afterwards you told me you were surprised by how nice everybody was. <laughs> I will tell you that very often when I finish your meditations, I have to remember that you are an atheist because sometimes as you describe the neurological processes that are happening within me, as I continue to do this practice, that is not so different than my interpretation of what God is. Yeah, well, it depends on what you mean by God. You know, so so my my atheism is not so much a claim that the universe isn't much stranger than we realize, and in fact, maybe in fact, be stranger than we can possibly imagine. And it's not a claim. So it's, it's definitely not a claim that we figured everything out and we've ruled out all kinds of. You know, spooky immensities, right? There's, it, things can be really, really strange, and the jury is still out on almost every question. But what the jury is not not out on, and what I really think is, it, we can say with you know almost complete confidence at this point, is that none of our books were dictated by omniscient beings, because there's just when you look at the books, there's no reason to think that. Right? You just read the books. If, you just take a a minute to imagine how good a book would be if it were, in fact, written by an omniscient being. Uh, I mean, it would be trivially easy to to write a book that proved that it could not have been of human origin, right? It's just, I mean, it could just just contain anachronisms, right? If if, if the Bible had something about DNA, right, like that, then yeah. we would know. Okay, well, then, all right, this is. There's no way someone two thousand years ago or three thousand years ago. Uh, uh, had any access to the, those truths, so something unusual is going on here. So, my atheism is really just a claim about books in the end, and then and then my mind is then I'm then I await evidence for all kinds of things, and I'm interested in all kinds of things. But I, I the simple claim is 
given that all these traditions are based or you know, the, the relevant traditions are based on dogmatic claims about the unique divinity and and perfect veracity of certain books the moment you challenge the the, the claims about books you know you are functionally an, an an atheist with respect to those religions i'm completely with you on the idea and then in my mind i frame it a little bit differently so for instance i'm completely in a, in page 82 of waking up you mentioned that one of your goals in like some of the middle chapters is to convince us that the conventional sense of self is an illusion it immediately makes me think of is the scene in grapes of wrath where reverend casey talks about maybe all men got one big soul everybody's a part of Mm-hmm. That that maybe were drops in an ocean. I'm completely with that. Yeah. But some of that I embrace in a kind of with a kind of poetic playfulness that does not then go to stern doctrine by which I persecute others and make mm-hmm. others want to adopt how I see the world because I don't see the world now exactly the same way I saw it five years ago or ten years ago. And who knows how I will see it tomorrow? Yeah, and, and so and this possibility that consciousness is, in some sense, unitary and transpersonal, and perhaps fundamental to the nature of reality. I certainly don't rule that out. I, I, I tend not to, as, as you know, I tend not to make metaphysical claims when I when I talk about the, the nature of mind and the nature of consciousness that the experience of self-transcendence and the, the illusoriness of the self, therefore, these are all claims about the nature of experience, about the, just the phenomenology that awaits anyone who pays close attention to the nature of their mind. And so, I, and I remain agnostic about the metaphysics of all of this, but it, it is in fact true that, that certain remarkable metaphysical claims may capture these experiences, right? So it's, and, and it does seem to me that consciousness itself is intrinsically impersonal. You know, it's, it's, there's no difference between your consciousness and my consciousness at the level of just sheer cognizance. The difference is in the contents of consciousness. The difference is in, in what, you know, what memories are there to be known. You know, so I don't wake up with your memories. You don't wake up with my memories. There's presumably a neurological explanation as to why. But consciousness itself remains a mystery, and it's not personal, right? You can experience that truth directly. Again, that's not a, a just a belief about the nature of consciousness as you keep falling back into it in in the practice of meditation and become merely the witness of of its apparent changes, you know, thoughts and sensations and moods and all the transitory phenomenon of one's inner and outer life. Everything is an appearance in consciousness and consciousness itself has no qualitative character apart from things like its openness and centerlessness and and this this is why this is where the language of the various spiritual traditions it begins to they they begin to apparently disagree with one another because you know in Buddhism they emphasize the negative of all of this things like you know they'll talk about what's what what's left being a matter of selflessness and emptiness and uncon- it's unconditioned nature, it's unborn nature, it's, it's, it's a lot of not, 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 not. And whereas you know, elsewhere in the Indi- Indian tradition, like in the tradition of Advaita Vedanta, they'll talk about the, the self, capital S, as, as though to posit some really existing transcendental object. But 
I think it's very clear they're talking about the same experience, and you just have to pick the language you, you favor. Uh, each, in my view, has a liability to it, uh, but the, the, the core insight is that separate sense of self, the sense that there's a subject in the middle of experience to whom all experience refers, the sense that you're on the edge of your life looking in, uh, and that there's this unchanging self that, that, that can appropriate experience moment to moment. There's a, that there's some there's a kind of a homunculus in the head, you know, behind your behind your eyes, looking out, you know, almost like wearing wearing your face as a mask, or you know, riding around in your body as though you you were a kind of ethereal passenger, right? That that's that's where most people are stuck, uh, and that's the place from which most people start meditating, and that really is an illusion, and it it can be felt through, and there's a lot of relief that comes when you feel through it. Well, let me mention something that you bring up a lot in meditation that I, by the way, I love, is you'll bring up meta-meditation, and you will ask the the listener to imagine, for instance, somebody who who is in our life or not in our life, but somebody who we admire or love and think positive thoughts about them. May they be happy. May they be free from suffering. I think a lot of religious people Think that if, and I think you and I are, are the, would be in the same place on this. I think a lot of religious people would think that if I'm in a prayer state and I'm thinking about loving thoughts, loving kindness thoughts about my family or dear friends of mine, that somehow there's something going through the airwaves and mm. that, that thought projection is having a beneficial effect upon that person, the object of my of my thoughts or my intentions. I do not believe that. I think that mm. my um, understanding would be it's making, it's centering me or it's making me feel more generous to people or reminding me of the people, let's say, who are dear in my life. I'm not a transmitter at that moment mm. that goes to their brain. Would, would you and I be on the same page with this? Yeah. I mean, I, I, again, I, I'm somewhat agnostic about that, but I think there's no good reason to believe that that's the case. But let's agree on that, that that until a jury or until uh, lab experiments or whatever come back with something. All right, then- And that that would be eminently testable, I should say, that the fact that we haven't demonstrated that in the lab is a a sign very likely that it doesn't exist because it should be very easy to- Psychic phenomenon of all kinds are among the most easily tested things you can think of, you know, in, in human psychology. Yeah. And there has yeah. been a fair amount of work done on that. And I'm very much with you in the chapters on waking up where you talk about irresponsible gurus, mm-hmm. frauds, grifters, confidence people who take well-intentioned disciples and then take their money or uh, have a tremendously uh, harmful impact on their lives. So as we wrap up, is there any single quote could be sacred, could be secular, could be whatever, could be uh, original. Mm-hmm. That when you're in times of stress, mm-hmm. that that you find yourself returning, that is almost instantly helpful to you. Uh, not so much. I mean, there's so many quotes I love and and they've been useful for me, but I don't have a kind of a go-to sort of mantra that I will use to edify myself at those moments. Or at least I don't. I don't have one. I mean, there's a you know. A wise quote comes to mind from the, the teacher, uh, Kala Rinpoche, who I've only, I didn't really study with, I only met once, but he was a great uh, Tibetan lama. 
and he said, we live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. You are that reality. When you understand this, you will realize that you're nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. And that, that pretty much sums up the whole <laughs> shebang for me. I mean, it, really, it's, it gives you the full tour of, of what there is to pay attention to and recognize. Okay, well, the very last question then, the entire world has agreed upon one thing, which is that for one day, you are going to be the benevolent dictator of the planet, mm -hmm. and you are going to become the curator that you're going to have everyone in the world experience some work of art. Could be a play, could be a movie, could be a book, could be a song, could be a painting or a work of sculpture, but something that you think if everyone were to take this in, in spirit of goodwill, not it being foisted upon them, but because they have unanimously selected you to be a mm. benevolent dictator for the day, what would you like everyone to experience? Well, that's a tall order. It's, it's putting a lot on me and it's a put, <laughs> putting a lot on art. And I, I think I'm more of a Philistine than, than you might imagine. So I, I, I'm, honestly, I would not be the best curator here, but I mean, one thing that occurs to me is somewhat ironic because this has explicit Christian and, and theistic reference here, but I recently reread The Death of Ivan Ilyich, uh, the Tolstoy's short masterpiece. And in terms of ramming home the, the insight of the, the brevity and preciousness of life and the, and the mechanics of unnecessary suffering that we impose on ourselves and those around us, it is just, it's just an amazing document. And uh, I, th I think much, much better than his, his, uh, his nonfiction approach to similar themes, which was his confessions. The novel is, is a masterpiece. Uh, the, the confessions are, are not, at least in my view. But uh, yeah, I mean, that, that can be read in a day and it's, it really is quite, a, it's quite an experience. I mean, he, he, he gets you to think about death in a way that I don't think most people manage on their own. Uh, and I think, I think there's a lot of wisdom to be extracted from it. There's another novella called Master and the Man. Which, mm. is, which is also incredibly powerful for how short of a work it is. You came to see at the Geffen, my play in which Tolstoy was a, a character. And I remember we went out with um, Stephen Mitchell and Byron Katie mm -hmm. afterwards. Oh, yeah. And I remember yeah. you all were talking about the world of gurus and teachers. And I felt like I had, that I was in the locker room with athletes who were playing a sport I'd never heard of. Uh, yeah, and had a yeah, sense of the hall yeah. of fame and who was who was better and i was happy to just listen to all of you but a lot of what uh, tolstoy says in that play is taken from confessions um or my religion i mean mm -hmm. he wrote so much nonfiction later it's incredible how much more effective he is as a communicator when he's writing in fiction than yeah. when he's didactically lecturing to you yeah yeah, that's a lesson that that I think many of us could profit from as well. I, you know, I, I was, I originally had aspirations to write fiction, and then I, it be, I, I began to worry that it was it was too freighted with my desire to be didactic and 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 uh, smuggle in various ideas, and so then I just pivoted to nonfiction. But there is something quite wonderful about reading great fiction that is just great fiction. Sam Harris, it is always such a delight to talk to you, and thank you so much. Oh, yeah. Great to see you. Great to speak with you again. Good luck on the podcast. I'm, I'm happy to see you're doing it. That's great. 
And now for the sermonette in my homily opinion. When Sam spoke at the church I used to attend, he admitted that atheism lacks rituals to help people through the stations of life. That reminded me of one of, in my homily opinion, the most compelling works in literature, Oscar Wilde's De Profundis. The circumstances of its writing are equally compelling. In 1895, just weeks after the debut of his comic masterpiece, The Importance of Being Earnest, Wilde was imprisoned for two years on the charge of gross indecency, as homosexuality was illegal in the UK until 1967. The hard labor to which Wilde was subjected severely restricted his visitation and letter-writing privileges. But as his release date neared, the British government relaxed its sadistic protocol to allow him pen, ink, and one page of paper in his cell. That page, once filled, was confiscated and replaced with a new clean sheet of prison stationery. The 80 pages that in time he wrote were handed him upon the return of his freedom in May 1897. They now reside in the British Museum. So here is an excerpt from De Profundis by Oscar Wilde. Religion does not help me. The faith that others give to what is unseen, I give to what one can touch and look at. My gods dwell in temples made with hands, and within the circle of actual experience is my creed made perfect and complete. Too complete it may be, for like many or all of those who have placed their heaven in this earth, I have found in it not merely the beauty of heaven, but the horror of hell also. When I think about religion at all, I feel as if I would like to found an order for those who cannot believe. The confraternity of the faithless, one might call it, where on an altar, on which no candle burned, a priest in whose heart peace had no dwelling, might celebrate with unblessed bread and a chalice empty of wine. For everything to be true, it must become a religion. Everything to be true must become a religion. An agnosticism should have its ritual no less than faith. It has sown its martyrs, it should reap its saints, and praise God daily for having hidden himself from man. So, does God hide himself from us, or do we just not know where to look for him? Email me at yegodspodcast at gmail.com or follow us on all social media platforms at yegodspodcast or review us on Apple Podcasts. And now, until next time, thanks for listening.